Hello, you're listening to Shut Up and Watch This, episode number 42. I'm Dave. I'm Ashley. And we're a couple in Austin, Texas, getting to know each other better by uncovering each other's media and pop culture blind spots and sharing the must-see movies and guilty pleasures from our past. That means each week, one of us gets to choose something that the other person has never seen before. Never seen it. And forced viewing Mm -hmm. ensues. Yes. And then we unpack it all here on the show for you. Yes. It was my turn to pick. It was. I got to choose the movie. You did. You chose it. What did I choose? What did you choose? Why? (laughs) And what (laughs) else did I... He chose Eight and a Half by Fellini, which big glaring blind spot I've never seen before. It's Um, true. It was time. I I don't know why. I mean, like... I mean, like, my common explanation for this is that... I like how she gets defensive yeah. <laughs> about it. <laughs> I was in my prior relationship. He had already seen Eight and a Half. Previously on Relationships. Yeah, he had already seen Eight and a Half by the time we got together. We're not doing the Italian filmmakers right now. Yeah, it's... it's we're not at that thing right now. So um, I missed out on that opportunity at that time. And um, just, like... I, I was working my way through French New Wave when you're I was... You're spe- not going yeah. long on, in that Yeah, one. yeah. I, mean, I was working my way through that. that. The the last time I had a, an extended a period of time to watch movies on my own. So um, I hadn't made it to Italian. Although I've seen Umberto D and Knights <clears> of Tiberia, you know. But, um, yeah. I just hadn't seen it for some reason. <laughs> cool. So why did you pick this movie? Why did I pick this movie? <laughs> because this is one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Although I forgot it was one of my favorite movies because I haven't seen it. I for... know exactly why it's your one of your favorite movies. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Let's unpack that. Let's in analyze a Dave. <laughs> um, this is one of my favorite movies. I haven't seen it in, I guess I saw it probably five years ago or so when I got the DVD. Again, the Criterion. You have to watch this on the Criterion. It's mm-hmm. beautiful restoration. Um, I saw it for the first time when I was about 15 or 16 years old. Mm-hmm. And I was working my way through the classic, like the magnificent films of yes. all time kind yes, of thing. That, you know? that sort of thing. So some of us do this. I was doing that when I was... Two of the men that I was in relationships do this. (laughs) I Like, when I fell deeply in love with the movies and wanted to see everything, that hit when I was around 14 or 15. Mm -hmm. We talked about it a little bit on this show before. I think it was Seven Samurai. Like, Mm -hmm. it started with me living a couple blocks away from the Castro Theater and um, seeing these movies from other countries for the first time and, like, these landmark films from the 50s and then wanting to read about them and wanting to just see everything and so i saw that around that time i saw it on a vhs tape it was a terrible copy it was whatever vhs tape was available that's the the criterion the aspect ratio was completely off it was like not had no contrast i mean Mm. it was like the worst way to see this movie um but in san francisco in the 80s the best video store in town if anybody's out there from san francisco it was la video Little mm. video. It was out. Um, it was on. We've that. seen the one by the park. Is that the one? The one yeah, by the park. Yeah, it's not there anymore. But the sign is still there. Yeah. Some other business has taken That's it. That's right. Over. It's a bookstore. I mean, store. it went under years. It's a ago. Green Apple Branch now. Oh, I guess it is. It's around like there. a yeah. It's on that street mm-hmm. where that cafe is with the bagels. With no, we the, found it. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's now. It hasn't a, been a video store for years. It's a branch of uh, Green Apple Books. Now. Okay, Little Video yeah. was the best <laughs> video store in the VHS days mm-hmm. in San Francisco. And they had everything, and I would uh, take the the bus and the metro all the mm-hmm. way out there, whatever, half-hour trip and walking and all that to go there, pick out two or three tapes, bring them home, maybe duplicate some of them with my two VCR set up so I could watch them again and add them to the Dave collection. Sorry. Um, but <laughs> that's what you did when you loved film in the 80s. Yeah, it's true. So... It was amazing. It, even, like, even in the 90s. I think I probably bit. checked it out in the first place because I was going through the Sight and Sound mm. top 
uh, film critics from around the world. Every ten years, they so do that's two iterations the top ago or three list. iterations ago. Well, now. this would have been the eighty-two mm. list. Yeah. That okay. I, so, and it was published like Ebert published it in mm-hmm. his. 19, I have it over there. Yeah. My first Roger Ebert's home movie companion, the first one he put out, and he has some appendices in the back, and he talks about their top ten lists, and then his top ten list. Um, his his Fellini movie is La Dolce Vita, mm. also amazing. Still not seen that but one I either. Had, I had to choose this one. Um, I had never seen anything like it. I've still never seen anything like it. It is the the passion and the angst of being mm. an artist, of being creatively blocked, something mm. I'm familiar with sometimes. sometimes. I love the uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love the play of fantasy and dreams and daydreams and reality and the joy of the editing and the music and Marcello Mastriani is like so charming and interesting Mm. i don't know it was just opened up a completely new world for me and i didn't remember how joyous a film it was in a way i mean it's about lots of angst but Mm. but something about the way it's all presented and what it's doing with movie making yeah like (laughs) and the music with the nino rota score and all of it coming together um i don't know it's still kind of exhilarating to me i forgot that it felt that way yeah so i don't know that's kind of loading the deck a little bit to talk about how much i like it where i'm supposed to be asking you like what your experience of seeing this for the first time is like well i'm gonna preface this by saying that i was a a little too sleepy when we started watching it luckily it was only the first like 45 minutes of it but i just couldn't focus on the sort of madcap pace that it keeps mm-hmm. um, because it's like it switches so quickly back and forth between what might be a dream and might be reality and it's never clear whether well, it's a that's dream one of the or things reality. I love about yeah. how fluid it yeah. is because you're really experiencing the world through his head, yeah. through his eyes. Well, and I... I guess I, I'd not read anything about it. I mean, other than sort of like it's eight and a half. Like I didn't have any concept of what it was really about. I knew there were lots of women involved, but I didn't really know, you know, anything about the plot or, or anything really. Which well, is let's do like, two seconds on the yeah. plot kind of okay. thing because we haven't, a lot of people might not know the movie. Um, so, I mean, like essentially you can wrap it up in like one thing which is like do this yeah i want you to do this (laughs) you put the pressure a director who is trying to make a movie and he has funding he has sets being built he has some semblance of a story but he's like creatively blocked on on the rest of what's supposed to happen so he doesn't know what the actors are going to do and he doesn't know what the scenes are going to be so it's him trying to get past finding all these ways to get past this block that he has in order to find, you know, the muse, the mm-hmm. the inspiration, the the creative spirit that, you know, is haunting him, but is elusive until the very end, you know, essentially. And you have the setting of this thing is that he's at a spa. Yeah. He's on a two week break at a spa. Like he's kind of like tried to check out to mm. like finally figure out this goddamn movie. Yeah. Like I'm going to kind of like figure this out, but his entire production company has kind of descended upon him yeah and there are actresses appearing who need to know who he's booked to be in the movie yeah. who have no idea what they're supposed to do and they're feeling very insecure everybody's feeling very insecure yeah. like it's chaos like the money everything is ready the ginormous like rocket ship spaceship set is, i don't even understand how the movie he's making is a science fiction film yeah but they're they're building a giant like spaceship mm. somewhere out in on the, the out, on by the, the outskirts beach. Yeah. by the beach and um, this is happening and you pretty much know he has not a clue what this movie yeah. is it's gone <laughs> like if he ever had it if he ever had any threads of it it's not really there so is that like a thing where you like pitch a movie and they start doing stuff and then you don't have a story in place? <laughs> I mean, well, I don't, I don't think it happens now. Not no, very much. No, but I think more in the age of yeah. of big movie funding Hollywood, this would be like Cinecitta or something, mm. and whatever you know, these giant producers in Italy were 
they book you for, you know, you have a contract yeah. to make three films That's or something right. like that. Yeah. And so they they have on their slate, you're starting film number three in March of 2020. And all the machinery is going towards that. So he he's like a respected director. Like you get the sense that he's basically like a Fellini yeah. who's, who has a name and has the stature to have... Some of these actors, actors and actresses are like really big. You yeah. get the sense of, you know, Claudia Cardinale appears as a actress named Claudia, who he wants to be in his movie. But isn't she the one that's the muse throughout the whole? She's thing? the muse throughout, and then she, the actress, actually appears in that scene towards okay. the end where that's they right. drive away from everything, and mm. she's like, "What am I out here for?" And he's yeah. like, "I think your part has to do with you being purity <laughs> and innocence, and and you know, you're in the spa, and you're." So the movie that's coming together in his mind is also directly coming out of the experience he's having now and from his life experience, yeah. so that. I mean, this has been done since then, but you basically kind of get the sense that the movie he is working on is the movie that you're watching. Yeah. Because... Same, yeah. yeah. Well, and it's funny because the reason we... Well, the reason that we watched this, two reasons probably. First is that we saw um, uh, Pain and Glory on Saturday. So this is Pedro Almodovar's new film. New film, which is very influenced by Eight and a Half. Like, you can see the influence. It even, like, ends in a similar way with the, like, it becoming clear that the movie, all these flashbacks to the childhood are part of the movie, you know, which... This is why I felt like the universe gave me a signal. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You know, the universe only talks to white women. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about what kind of wine they're going to have exactly. or, or, who, or yeah. the old Whether friend that's going to show up in yoga class. Or or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, we saw Pain and Glory, and I was leaning another direction for mm. this week's pick. It wasn't going to be eight and a yeah. half, but this has been on the back burner for a long time. Like, I kept Seven Samurai yeah. back in the background for a long time because it's so important that I just had to wait until it felt right. <laughs> and I wasn't ready for eight and a half, and then I saw Pain and Glory, mm. and I was like, we have to do eight and a half. Yeah. We have to. It's like... Pairing the wine with the steak or the meal, yeah. I mean, like we had to pair <laughs> eight and a half with the fact that we had just seen Pain and Glory. Yeah, Lana. We have a very thirsty dog, Lana. And uh, okay, you can come back here. Yes, because I'm not going to edit this. Okay, so you're the- just making it more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so the second reason is. Um, that you are going through a period of intense exploration of your creativity in a way that, you know, we've done off and on throughout our relationship, but I yeah. feel like you're taking it a little more um, seriously. This is not why I consciously chose yeah, this Yeah, well, one. I just, you know, it's, it's, it's a constant theme, this sort of theme of, like, creative block and, and getting over that and, and moving past your own mm-hmm. personal things to explore you know, events and, and, and things that shaped you in childhood and how that impacts you now and, and that sort of thing. This is so so deep. I didn't even know know that's why I I chose this film. (laughs) Well, Uh, um, I, I just, it's, it's interesting how things sort of come together sometimes, you know, I like one of the things that struck me and I don't know if I made a reference to it in the car when we were, I'm not allowed to talk about the film after we've well, started I'm not watching. Allowed to talk about the yeah. Film. I'm we, not allowed to, until we actually get together and I, talk about audience. Like you're so important that we have to like <laughs> put on the brakes and not talk about the movie until it's time to so, record. So yeah, we're, we're not allowed to talk. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply that only I was not allowed to talk to <laughs> <laughs> she's in there going help, help he doesn't let me talk about, about the, the movie film. no now they know we collectively as a rule do not talk about the film until we discuss it on the podcast but i made a reference in the car to where is the man with the cheese do you remember this yes and i still don't know what okay, you were so talking the about. immediate connection that i had because of the sort of flowing between scenes kind of thing is i think it's the final episode of season four of buffy is a dream thing where it's in the minds of several people but it's a constant flowing dream sequence from actually and it does that same sort of fade between like what's real what's real and what's not Mm -hmm. and and it reminded me of that and then there's like random characters 
in 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 that in that episode, there's an episode. There's like the man with the cheese that appears in every like, yeah, scene. Yeah, I remember that. Now. And like, I think there's characters in Eight and a Half that appear in every scene. So it sounds so, like you responded to the dream sequence yeah. stuff. Partly. <laughs> so I mean, I think I think it's just how influential it is. I mean, like, I don't. I mean, like, I have some concept of what film looked like before this came out in 1963. Well, you said you yeah. were a fan of um, Knights of Kiberia. Yeah, yeah. Right? The, that early, yeah. more neorealist But film. this... Well, and apparently, I was just reading about that, like, people were really mad about this. They did not like him completely, like, tearing up the neorealist structure. Oh, that's interesting, and- because, like, the... <laughs> It's, oh, okay. Because I didn't, yeah. I didn't stumble on that because I was reading how like the major critics, like everybody, thought yeah. this was amazing. Well, apparently, and I, I don't know if that's just a reaction to Fellini and in was general. Was that Italian specific? Maybe in Italy, it was or? Italian specific, but just that I was reading a Guardian story about it. Oh, cool. but apparently, like initially, like at the time, people were upset because you know it it completely broke with this sort of post war it moved into like it's a it's a postmodern piece or a reaction to modernism which is postmodernism you know so um yeah it's it's interesting well this was the kind of film that was telling audiences that you can make film mm-hmm. that is doing for film like what Joyce does for the novel or something yeah. like that. Like you're <laughs> kind of exploding things. Exactly. Well, and I don't think without this film, like anything that any, well, a lot of the ways that we tell stories with film were mm-hmm. influenced by this. You know, a lot of sort of irritating tropes that we have about dream sequences where you never know if it's a dream or not until they like suddenly we watched an episode of House where they used that trope the other Mm -hmm. day where like weird things were happening and we didn't understand what was going on. And then it's a dream sequence, you know. Here's the thing, though. (laughs) For me, the dream sequences still stand up and are still unique because they are not the kind of like they are not the kind of surrealist dream sequences that are like kind of blurry and it's got like a dwarf you know the kind of david lynch sort of take on a dream sequence like this is the kind this feels more like it's okay this feels more like our cats are acting up first the dog is uh (laughs) drinking for too long now the cats are acting up they're wrestling it's It's fine real life it's cool um yeah anyway what i was saying it's not lynchian (laughs) no it's not in fact what still rings true to me is like I said, that kind of fluidity of the dream sequence where it, where it's like an extension of real life and you seamlessly go from something that's actually playing out in his life to him standing at the mausoleum or the gravesite with his parents and talking yeah. to them. And then you realize it's a little weird that he's talking to his dad about the size of his grave yeah. and stuff like that. <laughs> and so it's not like hitting you on the head with a completely different look. And yet there's some little, there's some well, offbeat sort of stuff I, going on. I would on. argue that there's not a scene in the film where it's clear that it's not a dream or, or it is a dream to me. There's not a scene, a single scene in there where it it where, couldn't possibly be a dream, or you know, or it couldn't be a dream retelling of events well, that actually happened, you know. Okay. Like, like the well, I mean, like even the scene where he's like meeting his wife and her friend at a cock, at a at a right. cafe, and then his mistress comes, and then her behavior is just really bizarre. You know, she starts singing randomly at the table. Yeah. yeah. So to me, like that one is like one of the more realistic scenes, mm-hmm. but it, but it could still be very dreamlike in this like odd behavior well, that, because or it could be just because she's freaking out because her. You know, the guy she's having an affair with is, like, completely ignoring her for, you know, two weeks or whatever. And she walks in and recognizes, oh, shit, his wife is here. And she kind of tries to walk away for a moment (laughs) and then comes sort of mincing back and sits at a table far away. It's very weird. That's interesting because, like, okay, I've seen this movie a lot of times. Or, like, a mental interpretation of what is actually happening rather than what is actually happening. You know what I'm saying? Well... That's because the narrator, Mm -hmm. the narrative consciousness of the movie is not third person or omniscient. 
everything is filtered through the character yeah. of Guido. And so it could all, it, it, it's, it's seamless. Mm. It's dream. It's daydream. It's fantasy. Yeah. It's um, like, remember that scene towards the end? There's the really, he, I guess he's a masochist. Mm. He, he hires that critic, that writer mm. to come and like completely, like <laughs> absolutely like demolish his script. Yeah. Like throughout the movie, the, this writer, the bespectacled critic is mm. like following him around, talking about how trite his images are and how terrible, yeah. his, how small <laughs> his ideas are and all this. Kind of, and there's that moment at the end where the guy's going off again. They're in the screening yeah. room and then just seamlessly two people come and put a shroud over him and yeah. then hang him. <laughs> yeah. And it's but the rest of the scene you, is you understand is basically playing out their screening like the the rushes yeah. or the or the screen tests of of people who are playing the characters in his life that you're yeah. actually seeing. And you start to see screen tests of his wife, his mistress. <laughs> I don't know. I see what you mean. Yeah. I feel like like I, I don't know. I've seen it enough that I feel like this is a dream. This like I feel like I could connect the dots I and go, this actually, is a dream. This I is wonder dream. if it's like a map. Like a mental map. Of the creative process, like the whole mm-hmm. thing to me. I don't know. It just seems like everybody is not who they are. They're a symbol of something. So, like, I have like all this. I was trying it to. It does feel like that. It so feels very it like, was funny. symbolic. I was trying to think of, of the things, you know. So, I was like, I was like, so of course, because it's mid century Europe, it's got to be. So, I was thinking Freud. So I was looking at like id, super ego, ego kind of stuff. <clears throat> like to me, it's pretty clear that his mistress is the id, his wife is the ego. I mean, the super ego. Um, and then you know he's the. He's I think the, there has been psychoanalytic yeah. criticism. Well, of this and movie. then I read that he's way, way into young. So I like looked at the Jungian archetypes, and I think that there's some level of parallel between the major figures in the film and the, the Jungian ar- archetypes. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but I'm. You know, because there are so many women in it, and women seem to be sort of the the driving forces between that make things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking about um, what that meant, and like that the male figures are all—they're the critic, they're the producer, they're the journalist, they're his friend that you know provide mm-hmm. advice. They're all very practical. Mm-hmm. You know, all the male figures are these. Uh, well, except for the church, which is like this own, oh yeah, you know, thing. Also, the male church, <laughs> which is like something. Unfortunately, I can't really get into because I was not really raised in any type of religion. And then Catholicism has its own very deep you know, mm-hmm. traditions and everything like that. Like he has this, he says like, um, he's talking to the priest, I guess, and saying, um, you know, my character was raised in the church as we all are is what yeah, he says, right. you know, um, which is like a whole level of things, which I can try to understand, but only yeah. can, you know, get so far. So how about this also that some of the scenes we seen, we see, are him yeah. working out scenes for the movie he's trying yeah, to make. That's true. As he's processing the stuff that's actually going on. Because mm. he has a meeting with the Cardinal and, yeah, the, and the, the, Cardinal, the, yeah. the Catholic, <laughs> where, where the assistant of the Cardinal, you know, the, the one who make, he makes contact initially was with, well, we read your script and, you know, it's very <laughs> noble and great try kind yeah. of thing. But you know that he, his eminence would never meet with anybody of your stature in a mud bath, <laughs> in a steam room or yeah. whatever. And so what we get 10 minutes later is this extended scene of him going into the steam room yeah. and having a meeting with the Cardinal. Yeah. And it's like that's the fantasy slash potential scene that yeah. he's drafted for this movie idea he yeah. has. But that's not playing as a an actual realistic scene in if there is a narrative of what's actually yeah. happening at the spa. Is yeah. there? Is the spa real? Well, I mean like I think I mean like I think there's multiple ways there's like a bazillion ways to read this whole thing. Um like to me, like, there's a certain amount of him going to different places to look for that inspiration. So he goes to the spa to look for that inspiration. He goes to his mistress to look for that inspiration. He goes to his wife to look for inspiration. He goes to the church. And none of these things on their own have the the answer that he's seeking. And it actually ends up, I think, mostly being his childhood that sort of gives him the 
the the ultimate connection to mm-hmm. you know and those are the most i think interesting or cohesive scenes are the ones where the great and scene i'm almost tearing up yeah. right now because for me some of the childhood scenes are so beautiful mm-hmm. like for me the one the one at his grandmother's villa yeah or whatever or the, the dancing on the beach is the, amazing um, the, the that strange sort of sea wench prostitute yeah. on the beach who the little boys like yeah. skip school to go and pay her money to dance to the rumba dance for, for them her. yeah it's amazing that's an amazing scene yeah <laughs> so i i remember seeing that when i was 15 and like what the fuck is this <laughs> this is the weirdest thing i've ever seen yeah it's very well, fascinating and disturbing. And then he has like a reference to that like earlier when he's meeting with his his <clears throat> mistress and he asks her to put on he paints on eyebrows like Oh the, yeah, I never made that connection like the between the prostitute. He yeah. makes her to look kind of like the Saragina, yeah, yeah. The, the woman on the beach. She's, but I adore that flashback in the the villa with Ooh. the bathing and the the little children being put in dunked in the wine in for the their wine. baths and then put to bed and then the <laughs> hushed whisperings about how the picture in the room the portrait on the yeah. room the eyes will follow you at night and yeah. you have to say the magic words and all that i love that it's so good um and even to like it has that that beautiful quiet music and sort of yeah. a uh a female voice like his mother singing on the soundtrack. Yeah. La, 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 la. It's one of those great Nino Rota yeah. scores. So to me, I mean, and this this provides a good segue. So men provide the practical. Women provide like all the emotional, you know, they're the, they're the key to his nostalgia. They're the key to his like future creativity in the mm-hmm. form of this. He's the key to what's like good and moral in, in his life. Um, via his wife what's mm-hmm. you know um, what's like fun and silly and play in the form of his mistress what's practical like just practically speaking from I really like from his, his friends yeah <laughs> well and and his wife's friend who is she's my favorite oh uh, she's I, I love his wife but I love I his thought, wife friend I forgot about that character yeah she's, she's so great. great Rosella I think Rosella is her name. yeah, yeah. Um, she's my favorite that's just kind of like giving it to him straight but yeah. it's like you have to see La Dolce Vita because the actress who plays his wife, she was mm. like one of the biggest international stars she's, of the time. She's amazing. Yeah. Anouk Aimé. Yeah. She plays um, such a different character in La yeah. Dolce Vita. This world-weary, like, socialite, glamorous woman with the, like, cigarette holder and, mm. like, his... But they're kind of um, companions in in sort of walking this world of the night in yeah. Rome and stuff like that. She's, I think you saw part of the yeah. movie with me one time. And she's the one who's like, let's go back. Let's pick up that prostitute down there under the bridge. And, yeah. and they, and she takes them back to her place and they spend the night in the prostitute's bed. I, I think you yeah. saw that, but you were tired, but, um, I don't know. Just a shout yeah. out for, <laughs> for the, for the actresses in this movie. So, yeah. And I think it's interesting that he seems to fit his creativity as, as I don't know if he considers it a female characteristic or just that women are the key, that being tuned into those emotion, that emotional side of him is the key to the creative part of himself. And that, you know, it's, it's interesting and it makes sense of the sort of very gendered culture that, Italy has now, but even, even more had then, you know, so I don't know. But where are we with him? I mean, he's kind of falling apart. I mean, like he's grasping and he's trying, but it's kind of crumbling, right? I mean, does, don't you get, does Well, I think it's the balance, balancing the real world, like these financial and in like these, moral demands of but if society you want to go very literal you know. to the film that he's trying to make in this movie like he ends up shutting it down right i yeah. mean don't you get the doesn't it end with him like sending everybody i mean like it like they call off the shoot yeah so guido well yeah he tears everything film, down in order to ultimately find his his inspiration again, you know. But the only inspiration he finds is the glorious scene at the end, which is like the circus of all the people in his life. Yeah. You know, but well, that's, it's that's almost him just embracing all of his raw material, yeah. his life, his being, all the people he's loved and hated, all the all the chaos, all the all of that. But that doesn't even mean 
there's a film there unless yeah. Fellini's eight and a half is the film. Well, that's, that's the thing is like I read, you know, cause <clears throat> Fellini seems to be, and I haven't seen a whole lot of his films, but seems to be a master of sort of threading his own personal by autobiographical experience in with the sort of different types mm-hmm. of films that he makes. He's able to sort of weave that. And that's, that's beautiful that he's able to do that. But apparently like the ending, although there's apparently several endings were filmed, like it was inspired by like when he was making this film, he was like completely lost, had sold it to everyone, but was completely lost up until the moment of filming. And then he said that he was on the verge of like canceling everything. And then he went, he felt like he needed to fulfill his obligation to all these people that he had. So he like arrived on set and like everything fell into place. And like, apparently he drove people nuts with the sort of like chaotic nature of the improvisation. But he basically said this terrible crisis that I'm going through where I doubt everything. And I feel like I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Let's make a movie about Let's that. Let's make a movie about that, yeah. Let's make a movie about the 9,000 questions you guys are asking me about the production yeah. design and who's in it. Let's make a movie about how my wife needs my attention and my mistress needs my attention. And Like, let's make a movie about creative, creative like, crisis. Yeah. <laughs> and so Fellini made the film. Yeah. I don't think Guido made the film. No, Maybe no, no. He, Guido did not make the film. Yeah. Well, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, I had no idea, but apparently in Italy at the time, when they're making films, like, 90% of the dialogue is, like, dubbed after the fact. Oh, this is a thing. Yeah. Watch any Italian movie (laughs) from this, whatever, I don't even know how long, 20-year period, anything we've ever seen, Cabiria, Umberto D, it's all dubbed. They don't shoot sound. They do not record sound on set. So apparently, like a good percentage of this film, like the dialogue was written after the fact. Mm-hmm. So he had the people. Oh, they're like, just talk about what you're going to have for dinner yeah. tonight. And we'll dub in something. Yeah, later. exactly. It's crazy. So then it can, it can be anything, you know? Well, so there's so many levels of, and parts to making the narrative. Well, and that I think contributes to the sort of dreamlike nature of things, because it's obvious that they're saying something different than what's coming out of their mouths. Even if you don't, I think it's fascinating. Yeah. Because, it's really interesting. Like, <laughs> it's not normal to us as viewers to, to see that like uns that badly synced sort of thing. And yet it was such a convention. It was so normal. Like, they they did that. I mean, I think Godard did that, too, with Breathless. Yeah. I mean, it was a thing that they did back then in the 50s, particularly in the European cinema. I don't think Hollywood would ever have done that. But, no. Interesting. But for, yeah. But I think Italy and, and I want to say some of that French New Wave stuff. Yeah, I would bet that's true. That's interesting. Boy, it kind of changes the way... <laughs> <laughs> think about that sort of thing but i mean well, in this also case meant that fellini could focus on imagery and what the camera is doing and how the people look and how they relate yeah. to each other and 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 the emotional truth of it rather than even exactly what they're saying yeah i always think it's interesting because there's some amount there's a small amount of english in the film yeah and my brain like because you're reading you know, you're in the you're in the sort of zone of reading, yeah. and then all of a sudden you hear something that's in a language you understand, and it's like this weird. It's like it's like when the ground shakes, and yeah. you know, you're like, "What's going on?" And then all of a sudden, it's like too late <laughs> to well, understand what they're that, saying. <laughs> they talk in French. They talk yeah. in English. They mm-hmm. talk in a number of other languages in the film. We're gonna squirt the cats now because they're wrestling. <laughs> And we know you guys don't it's like it when cats wrestle. Yeah, with cats, right? One now. cat enters. No, two cats enter. <laughs> two cats one cat leaves. One Sorry. Cat leaves, yeah. We did Thunderdome on this show once. I think almost exactly a um, year ago. Okay, so you've talked about like the symbols, mm. and you've talked about, and we've talked about. I don't know. I just want to say, on a very human level, like just getting into like a film that depicts one person's way of seeing the world Mm -hmm. one person's emotional state one person's psychological state his connection to his own past 
I just think it does that. So like beyond however many treatises or articles or essays people could write about the symbology or the psychoanalysis or the role of women or archetypes or anything like that. I also just think like, this is what I feel like when I'm driving my car and something reminds me of um, some, a, a story idea pops into my head or something sends me back 40 years to an incident in my childhood, like how fluid that is where you're there and then not you there. Yeah. Where you're in the real world and you're present and you're not there and you're somewhere else. And it does that so well. I think that if you're going <clears> to <throat> talk about what it says about the creative process, I think like the final scene, well, not the final scene, but the almost final scene where you know, it's time for him to do the preface conference and say what the film's about and start the production. And he, you know, won't talk to anyone. He ultimately ends up like crawling up under the table and shooting himself in the head is, is, is what happens. Which again is just a fantasy. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. But to me, that's like a symbol for letting everything go. And like, there are times in your life when you feel stuck and, and, lost and you don't know where to go in order to deliver whatever you need to deliver and there's this moment of like where you're able to sort of unfocus your mind from all the stress and all the responsibility and all the pressure and just something just flows through you and and you see those connections to everything and everyone and that's when I mean, and I think that maybe that's a description of a, of a creative process that's particular maybe to a certain type of person. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But to me, that seems very familiar. To me, that sort of like that moment of unfocusing and then seeing how everything fits together, that sort of like aha realization. And do you think that's where we leave Guido in the movie with him embracing his I think, own I think voice and his own I think experience. that's in letting everything go and just turning himself over to to the inevitable I guess is where he finds that ultimate you know that that this whole process is like gathering things and and making connections but it doesn't make sense until that moment of like you know, washing everything away or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you see the ending as a, as a triumph or as a him accepting something about himself or about his creative process or about the project he's working on or where, I mean, it's you, a break, th- it's a, it's a of breakthrough it? of some sort. I don't mm-hmm. know what the ultimate result is. Uh, to me, it's hopeful. It's, uh, it's, um, it's some sort of realization, you know. They said there was an original ending that felt more downbeat that had him like on a train or something with his mm. wife going back to Rome or, yeah. or something and looking out at the window and seeing people from his past. And it felt more like a death or yeah. like a suicide or something mm. like that. And that's not... And the... And then the... um this wonderful circus thing at the yeah. end was originally shot to be a trailer for the mm-hmm. movie. It wasn't yeah. supposed to be in the film narrative. And then Fellini realized this has to be in the mm-hmm. film. This has to be where it's all going. Yeah. The circus master well, leading into I mean, like, all I guess of the people in his life. If you're on a train <clears throat> heading back to Rome, which Rome really hasn't had any sort of role in this at all you know what no, is this it? whole thing must take takes place in about a week or yeah, a few days or something what what is that supposed to to mean i mean it doesn't maybe it was eventually eventually meant to symbolize synthesis in a way but i don't know sometimes sometimes realizations end in synthesizing into one thing but sometimes they sort of explode into like a I'll tell you one thing. I've never <laughs> interpreted the ending where he goes under the table and shoots himself as a literal him no, going no. under the table and shooting yeah. himself because it's absurd no. that he would climb under the table in the middle of this like uh, Q&A session with the journalists yeah. and shoot himself in the head. Well, it's it's funny that I just I think that because of the type of people that we are that we react 
this way. It, it just seems like a very familiar experience, the sort of like like this out of like this experience of feeling like overwhelmed and dreadful and and anxious that there's like some sort of burst of insight and and that that comes from that and that there's something to be gained from that sort of squeezing of of those brain muscles or something like that that results in the sort of like shooting out of and also there's this constant tension between him not knowing what the fuck to do. Like, yeah. he is so stuck. Yeah. And he is so scared. And that there's not even time to feel that. Mm. And he's being bombarded constantly with all the questions about what should the set look like? And which actress do you want to play this? But which old man do you want to play your father? <laughs> and when are you going to tell the woman who looks like the snail what her role is going to be like? And, <laughs> like, like, we all need answers. Yeah. Like, can you come out to the set and look at the, the rocket ship we're building? And he doesn't have time. I mean, like, he's in a state of panic. And yet the tension is that he has to fake it. Like, he yeah. has to be competent enough and and delay just enough to keep the thing afloat just another day just another couple days with that kind of that hope yeah that trust that hope that it will come together won't it come together there's like a some amount of trust you have to have in yourself this sort of fake it till you make it kind of thing like you know, if even if you're not interested and you don't have enough attention to give to all the details and that, you know, all this stuff that that somehow magically it does fall into place, you know, that mm-hmm. there's a competence that you don't know, that you don't feel like you have. Mm-hmm. I didn't. So yeah. Well, what I didn't realize or had forgotten was that Fellini was going through this when he made mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. I had always thought this was a master direct writer director's take on the worst place that you can be yeah. during the creative state, not realizing he was literally going through this and that's what the film came out well, of. You, you know, they always talk about like when, so we, we, we teach, we teach a lot. That's one of the things that we do, but they always talk about explaining your thinking and how that helps people understand you in, in a and and understand themselves in in a way that will help them learn better in the future but like he's explaining his thinking here you know he's making visual his thought processes which is kind of amazing as a film yeah <laughs> it's not a treatise it's no. not a, a memoir yeah it's not an essay well and how, how hard is it to do that i mean it's probably immensely easier to do that in 1963 in Italy post-war when, you know, people didn't have such a clear idea of how to make money with film and, and that sort of thing. Like, imagine trying to make that film now. You couldn't. I mean, like, nobody would give you the freedom to explore this because it's not marketable. Well, you, know? you would never be greenlit without... Yeah. A project either. Yeah. <laughs> you know. What's Martin it? Scorsese film, March 2019. Yeah. I mean, not in this day and age. Well, you know, there's a formula now that you have to follow, and only a few people are allowed the freedom to 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 follow that formula according to their own design and not according to like schedules and and money timelines and all of that stuff. So yeah. It's interesting in <laughs> following podcasts with writers and novelists and stuff like that. Sometimes I hear about some of them with book contracts and stuff will say like, "Well, in my contract, I have to deliver a synopsis." Yeah. first. Right mm-hmm. in a in a breakdown or whatever, and like I put down any old thing, <laughs> like I and then like sometimes I completely leave that in yeah. the dust. And but you have to do that. You have yeah. to say here is Act One, Act Two, Act Three, Chapter One. Here's the chapter breakdown and all that. And some of them are just like, and then I've done that, and that's for yeah. them. And then I write the book that I want to write. Sometimes yeah. it doesn't have anything to do with what I put down <laughs> in the book proposal. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I've been studying 
in my architecture class, we, we read a chapter on Eames and their design process, um, Charles and Ray Eames, and they talk about how constraints are, you know, Charles is kind of the spokesperson for the, for the design team that is Charles and Ray Eames. But essentially that constraints are what gives people the sort of ability to create within those particular constraints, you know. So sometimes that's a good thing, you know, and and like in this case, he just had to deliver. So he delivered this amazing piece of art that is all about all the struggles he got, you know, all about the struggles he needed to, to make in order to... Well, you know, you know, this exploration I'm doing right now with intuitive writing (laughs) and like, you know, not plotting and planning and like creating the, the, Mm. the structure first. He's doing that in film. And like, how is it that he was, he was (laughs) even able to do that? Yeah. And sadly, I want to say this, at least in my opinion, I think in a lot of critics' opinion, this film is like the pinnacle of his art. This is yeah. like his great work. Mm-hmm. And nothing ever quite reached this level. And I don't know why. If it well, was that- nothing, nothing connects to that. <clears throat> I mean, like, you're getting the clearest picture of the artist that you can because he's actually turning his brain inside out for you to see. And that is the purest like form of of the artist is this this like turning my brain well, inside think- out and showing you what's inside. And he had like no shame. He put it all out there. You know, he he well, showed his shame, he showed his doubt, he showed his uh, you know, irresponsibility. He showed all of that. If Guido is indeed, yeah. you know, the stand in for yeah. Fellini, like if it's as autobiographical as it seems, I mean he's like I am a terror. I'm like I'm a treat, terrible. I treat person. the women in my yeah. life horribly. Yeah, I ignore them. They are. They are. They I, make me who I am. They serve me. Yeah, yeah. I am at the center of a harem. Yeah. We didn't talk about the harem scene. Yeah, but he wouldn't be who he is without those those women. Those the men provide him the ability to express that financially, practically. But the women give him that inspiration, the the spark, the. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's interesting. Well, how do you how do you feel about the Marcello Mastriani, the Guido character? Like, I've, is he a terrible person? I mean, like, how do you? What is your attitude towards him? Well, as a new so viewer? he definitely does amoral things. He does. He's irresponsible. He's careless for his wife's feelings. He's careless for his mistress's feelings. He is obsessed with himself and you know, but that's the but thing is he doesn't treat women like yeah. he does, but I identify with him. He's like, he, he's human. He's yeah. human. I mean like who among us hasn't done things that we regret, have treated people not as as we would like to be treated. You know, who among us hasn't, you know, focused more on ourselves than than on others, you know. It's there's so a, sad when yeah. <laughs> he's excited about when he invites his wife to come out, and then mm. she comes out, and he's really excited. Mm. Like he's really happy to see her, and she's happy that he asked her to come. And then, like on a dime, like yeah. he's like, "Oh my god, she went co- completely." Mm-hmm. Something happened, and and that's because we learn later that she spotted his mistress somewhere yeah. there. That's sad. Yeah. And well, he, I mean, he feels I, terrible about it. I but just, I dude, <laughs> don't invite your mistress and your wife to the same spa at the yeah. same time. It's simple, really. <laughs> just have them in separate places at different times. <laughs> Compartments, dude. You know, I, I mean, and I don't even want to judge him on on that level. I mean, like that's an external morality thing that we've placed on people and. <clears throat> You know, people have to decide within their relationships what works and what doesn't for them. So I don't even want to judge him on that. But I mean, like, I just think that he's profoundly human and that that there is in humanity, there is capacity for great beauty and great, great, great good. And then the in the same person, there's capacity for great evil and great uncaring you know and i wouldn't call him evil what i would yeah. call him is self self-absorbed yeah. he's a nurse yeah. i mean i don't know if he's actually he's but made, that he's self-absorption l- leads he's him to actions that are evil 
objectively evil, you know, but, or subjectively. Objectively? Subjectively. We didn't really talk about the harem scene, Mm. so I want to, like, tap you on that. One of the things I find interesting about that, as I hadn't, I was kind of cringing waiting for it to come up, because I was like, this is not going to play well. I mean, how can it play well? Like, you have this extended 10 or 15, 10-minute fantasy Mm. sequence where... Um, all of, where all of this conflict with the women in his yeah. life, suddenly he, we see this fantasy sequence where he comes home to yeah. basically the villa from his childhood, I think, only now it's the center of this wonderful harem of all the women in his life. They're all mm. there, and they all lovingly dote on, on him, and there's this whole weird issue of one of the older ones aging out and being sent upstairs because she's hit the age and all that. But what I think is hilarious that even in how conflicted this guy is, even in his fantasy of the harem, the women, like, rebel. They like, rebel against him, yeah. Like, they tell him he's terrible, and they... <laughs> <laughs> they, they, and uh, I just think that's funny. Like he can't even control his own fantasy. Yeah. Is like it starts. Well, he to... can't lie to himself. Yeah, he's trying to lie to himself. Mm-hmm. He's even semi-successful at lying to himself for a while. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. I see the upstairs as like <clears throat> not as like. I mean, we we get the idea that there's women up there, but I think there might be men too. But the upstairs is like people who don't impact me. People that don't matter to me mm-hmm. anymore. You know, I don't know. It, I, I wasn't offended by that because at that point, especially in that scene, the women are symbols. They aren't. He's not they're literally people. Not they're symbols. Lashing of a whip at literal yeah. women. His wife becomes the caretaker, the central caretaker and his, you know, her friend becomes the like one who explains everything to everybody. And you know, the, so, I mean, it, it, I mean, like, and then by rebelling, it's like his own ideas, his own emotions rebelling against his, you know, behavior, which has been, you know, repellent and, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't know, like even he's not letting himself off the hook, I guess, or something like that. But to me, it didn't really bother me that much because at that time it was so clear that they were symbols or thoughts or ideas or, you know, not, not actual humans, you know, at at that point, you know. In this particular fantasy, you know. It's really meaningful to me that we watch this movie because yeah. I did see it so young mm-hmm. and I've seen it at fairly regular intervals throughout my life and I'm not ever like the same person, you know, yeah. like I'm a different person at 48 years old than I was when I was <laughs> 15 or yeah. when I was 23 or that kind of thing. And I can even remember, you know, I saw this movie when I was 20 with my mom and took her to see it at the Red Vic in San Francisco. And I saw this in the nineties with a couple of friends from college and, um, we smoked a little pot and it was a very weird experience of, uh, (laughs) eight and a half. (laughs) Um, but it's always compelling it's always exhilarating it's always beautiful it's always moving it always reminds me of everything that i once wanted to do in movies it i don't know and now here i'm on the other side the first time i saw it was before i ever started writing or before i ever went to film school or did any of that now i'm on the other side of all that yeah you know i went to film school and (laughs) i did direct films and um, and now I'm older than Guido was, so that's freaking me out a little bit. Are you? He's 42, 43. Uh, okay. I don't know how old Marcello Mastroianni actually was, but they say he's 43, I think. 42. Okay, yeah. Um, now I'm on the other side of that, too. Mm. So, I don't know. It lives on. Yeah. It still feels fresh. Yeah, it does. So, I mean, it's still it. It's it's modern. It's so modern in the way it presents thought processes. But I mean, like we're starting to. There's an optimism that maybe isn't we don't have as much anymore. There's you know, mm-hmm. just because we're not able to explore things. Well, is it even late do, stage capitalism doesn't allow us to do explore we things? Now <laughs> value the artist 
in the way that we did when these great filmmakers no i don't think we do i think it's all about money and and whether it can be financially you know which is unfortunate i mean that's not always the case we've watched some beautiful independent films that were not about yeah but when you see a new tarantino movie it's not the same as in the 50s when you were waiting for the next fellini movie to come out after seeing something like eight and a half no well, and I mean, it's only through him being financially and critically successful that he's able to have the freedom to do whatever he wants to do. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I think operating within the constraints of the money and time that he had before actually resulted in better films earlier in his career than mm-hmm. than what we're seeing now, you know, for the most part, you know, I think, you know. So... 1963 Italian movie with like a reputation like this worth seeing? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Should it be scary to anybody who's never seen it? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think you should go in with the expectation that there, if you go in with the mindset as I did, that there would be some sort of structure, which you might expect of a film from the sixties. Did you have trouble finding the structure? I had trouble finding it. So I, I, I was served a lot by going back and reading some things about it and figuring out, I mean, like it was clear to me that it was about the creative process and that it was a mental thing, but it, it was a little harder for me, at first, especially the first 45 minutes because well, I was sure a little I sleepy. Was very, I can't yeah. go back to where I was, yeah. when I when I saw it as a teenager, how disoriented must I have been? I don't well, think I read about it before I, I saw it. I can see how the critics at the time would have been like, what is going on right <clears throat> now? Because this is not, you know, it looks like an Italian neorealist film until it starts behaving in a not mm-hmm. way, you know. Um, so yeah, subverting expectations, it's always a little hard to sort of, and a lot of people fall out at that point, but if you come into it expecting this sort of unexpected thing and this like taking things apart and, and, you know. (laughs) And the black and white cinematography. Yeah. And the editing. And is there anything cooler the Marcello Mastriani with shades on in yeah, the 50s. Yeah, he's pretty awesome. Tux. Yeah. So if we were to continue our adventures in Fellini, the two that I would most immediately want, that I think you like would bracket mm. this really well, is we have to go back up one yeah. and see La Dolce Vita. Mm-hmm. Which that was the immediately prior. would be podcast worthy. Yeah. But, you know, we will not do another Fellini right away. Um, but that's Marcello Mastriani, same actor. Mm. Same beautiful black and white, widescreen, you know, it's just a few years earlier, but that's, you know, the Via Veneto and paparazzi culture and the life of Rome and the streets at night and like... It's, well, and that's moving. It's a completely in, different it's film. Moving into the postmodern era. Yeah, it's not neorealist yeah. at that point yeah. either because it's got a very yeah. unusual structure. I think it's a seven-act film where you have d- different sequences, but it's about this kind of journey through I don't know the circles of hell or something, but as seen mm-hmm. in the nightscape of Rome. You know, that's something we didn't talk about is the <clears throat> classicism that's mm-hmm. inherent in this film. And tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, he talks about this this ideal. I, I, I describe them as the muses, the female goddesses of creativity mm-hmm. that inspired all the arts, you know, in traditional Roman mythology. Um, but that he talks about this, this inspirational figure, Claudia Cardinelli, who is, you know, she's young and innocent, and at the same time, she's like the future and wise and she has a wisdom beyond her years and all of this is I mean like that's the ultimate figure of the muse and there must be I mean how could it not be if you grew up in Rome with all the Mm -hmm. you know all the you know columns and the Greek goddesses everywhere and you know or the Roman uh, Roman equivalents essentially but you know that's how could you escape that and actually Catholicism has embedded in it sort of classicism because it kind of came from that that structure of catholicism comes from the classicism so i mean like it's hard to escape that um i'm excited for you to see the dolce vita (laughs) but yeah i can see that dante might be a you know if he's if he's pulling on the seven levels of hell then that's gonna be dante you know 
I'm excited for you to see La Dolce Vita. Yeah. You'll see some of the recurring things because that also has a figure of innocence in it. It mm-hmm. has a a young um, girl in a taverna, a waitress in a taverna, and a, in she a, have red hair. No, she's blonde <laughs> oh. actually. But the 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 rough outline of La Dolce Vita is you have a journalist, like a gossip columnist, yeah. who ha- wants to be a novelist. Yeah, but his job is he's a shitty gossip columnist who like drives around with paparazzi cameramen like harassing celebrities and kind of going deeper and deeper so that he is now participating in the parties and the debauchery and whatever while he has that yearning to like i can be an artist i can be a novelist i want to be that and and there's this scene in the the middle of the movie or something where he goes to this beautiful outdoor sunny it's one of the only day scenes i think taverna and the this girl's kind of cleaning up the uh, you know putting out the plates and clearing the stuff while he's sitting there at a typewriter trying to work on his novel and completely it's not happening and she's walking around singing some beautiful song and she becomes this this figure yeah and he sees her again in the film at the ending but like this unreachable like ideal and meanwhile i'm stuck in like this awful sensationalist dreary flashy world of alcohol and cars and like it's very interesting that's it's you know it's always i didn't talk about this but maybe i should have but i always think it's fascinating that like men have this like they tend to focus i mean and not maybe not all men but like straight men who make art (laughs) tend to focus on this like young innocent female as this sort of the you know, symbol symbol of of how things could be better or, or something. And I don't understand. My creativity doesn't come from that. I'm not inspired by, you know, you know, I'm inspired by nature. I'm inspired by, well, maybe you, that is you know, simply... other art. You know, it's just, it's interesting that that always tends to be, or maybe that's just more relatable to well, maybe people. maybe that comes back to the idea of men being less connected to emotion. Yeah. And maybe that female figure is like a feminine aspect or yeah. a, an like emotional Like it's ultimate, it's sad if it's these, this creature is in, and ultimately unknowable to them that makes me very sad you know because like i don't know i feel i feel that type of creativity when i look at a natural space it's those type of feelings are are accessible to me without a proxy i guess well and there's also like beyond the art making they're trying to do there's a a longing for human connection that they're not getting in the surface level life that they're leading. And that's the case in both of these movies, I think. Yeah. And I, I guess it was, it's more socially acceptable to make that in the form of a female than to make it in the form of, you know, although there's some beautiful counter examples that I was, I was just listening to the soundtrack of call me by your name, which makes this sort of to see that again. beautiful argument of a young boy just exploring the world and how, how that can, I don't know. It's, I'm, I'm glad that we're starting to explore other symbols for that sort yeah. of thing, you know, although not that, not that young women aren't awesome because they are, you know, so I was going to bracket what I was saying earlier with the other film on the other side of this that I think you should see at some point is Amarcord, which means I remember, mm-hmm. I think. And um, that's all I have about. The, I have the poster in my mind. It's okay. very um, graphically so, um so that will Arresting. connect with yeah. the, I mean, it's all childhood memories from his act, his mm. growing up in Rimini or wherever, wherever mm. the seaside town in Italy that he grew up and it's beautiful, but I don't know. This is the one for me, yeah. except for, uh, Marcello Mastriani, um, dancing in the fountain, the Trevi fountain, mm. uh, with Anita Ekberg and La Dolce Vita. That's the other scene that I can't live without. <laughs> all right. Do you have anything else to say? I think I think I said all the did, things. Did we talk it out? Did we you, talked did all you, the did things. we talk about the symbology and the archetypes? We did. We talked okay. about all that stuff. Psychoanalysis. Yes. Jungian for yes. symbols. Yes. Check. <laughs> all right. Well, if you're still with us, thank you for listening, and we'd love to hear your thoughts about Eight and a Half. And if yeah. you've never seen this, go out and see this movie. It's like so good. Yeah. Um, just just make sure Italian that you, film from the fifties. Caffeinated. 
preferably Italian espresso. This movie benefited from <laughs> us breaking it in half because yeah. I think that I usually try and push through and watch the yeah. whole thing and get tired the second half, halfway through. And I was so alert when we watched the second yeah. half last night that I really appreciated and saw for the first time in a long time no. some scenes that I probably was drowsy yeah. in the last couple times I watched. Yeah. So anyway, thank you for listening to thank us. You. We'll be back in two weeks with Ashley's pick. And um, in the meantime, idiocracy. Yeah. Oh, is that what we're doing? We're doing idiocracy. Okay. It's Um, time. You can subscribe to our show, and I recommend that you subscribe to our show on your favorite favorite podcast app, and you'll know exactly what we drop next time it comes out. You can go on another adventure with us as we experience a movie for the first time for one of us. Um, Find us on Facebook. Shut up. Watch this. Instagram, shut up, watch this. Drop us an email at shutupwatchthis at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the movie. And we'll be back with you in a couple weeks. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.